Hey everybody, Leah Slaughter. Hope you are having a wonderful weekend. I'm excited to have this class today because I think it's important we talk about the elephant in the room and that is our real estate market, our economy, inflation, and really the driver of this all real estate investment and purchase interest rates. We have a good friend of mine here today who I consider a guru, not only on real estate lending, but also the market as a whole. If you don't follow him on social media, I strongly recommend that when we finish today or while you're listening, you go friend request him on Facebook. He is providing daily updates on what he's seen on the front lines of conventional lending, which is a great tool to use for the strength of the markets the changes in the markets and also setting expectations and using all of that data to our advantage as real estate investors. And that's one of the things that we're going to talk about today is how real estate investors need to be viewing what's going on and the opportunity that the unique few month period we are in right now presents. Of course, if we watch the news, what we're hearing is the tragedy of what's happening and how terrible it is, but us savvy real estate investors, we know this is the unique opportunity where we might actually be able to get good inventory before just the floodgates open. And so we're gonna talk about that. As always, after classes, you can go onto our website under media and see all of our previous classes and webinars for about the last two to three years. You can always go to Facebook to see upcoming events and webinars that we are offering. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or go to our YouTube channel, any of our podcast networks. Uh, some people like to listen on the way to work. Some people prefer to watch it with the slides. So whatever works for you, we try to have an avenue uh, for you. As always, everything we're going to talk about today is our best judgment and guidance based on years of experience, not only as, in his case, a lender and both of us as real estate investors, but also owning and operating a real estate investment and management firm and investment companies. We are in unique times, and so a lot of us are analyzing data on a daily or multi-time a day basis. And what that allows us to do is look at compare and contrast situations from when we dealt with 2007, 2008, 2009. Daniel and I both have been in the business through an actual real estate market crash. And we both follow the market, both from a real estate investment perspective, a political perspective, all the different sides that we have to look at to really truly understand what's happening, not only on a nationwide basis, but also a regional basis. One of the things we're gonna be talking about today is hyper-local strategies and hyper-local changes because so much of what happens on our national news and on the presidential level of what's being discussed and changed truly is designed and targeted to affect a nationwide economy and when you're a real estate investor, there is no such thing as a nationwide real estate market. We are hyper-local and there are markets that are gonna do fantastic right now and there are markets that I would avoid like the plague. And so one of the things that I want you to keep in mind, and I've been talking about this a lot, is make sure that you are researching and listening to those that are operating in the markets that you are operating in. So if you're working in North Texas, I certainly hope that I'm one tool in your toolbox, but if you're working and operating in other markets, I want you to make sure that you are finding people who specialize in those markets, who are active in those markets, and who are providing you data and assessments based on those hyper-local situations. 
all too often, I think we got sucked in, sucked into that nationwide craze of, well, this is what's happening in the entire market. And we forget that each metro, each city, each suburb, each market type, each property type, it's all different. And we have to make sure that we are looking in the right places. Because what we talk about that's a strategy that works here in a strong market like North Texas is certainly not a strategy that you might want to go take back to, say, San Francisco or New York or Las Vegas, et cetera. Uh, there are certain markets we've been warning about, and we are seeing changes in those markets. And hopefully you've been listening, and hopefully you're staying educated. Everything is our best guesses, though. We have no crystal ball. And so what we're going to talk about today, and as always, is going to be what we think and what we're doing and what model we are following and what we believe in. And we are one piece of that puzzle that you are using to form your investment journey. Uh, we're not going to take questions today only because, A, this is a massive class, and B, because a lot of questions are going to be property-specific and situational-specific. So I'm going to ask you that you email us or reach out to us by phone, and we'll field those questions individually. Otherwise, I think we'd be here for three or four hours. This is this is a really charged topic, but it's also a really good topic because a lot of us that have been through this before, we love times like this. We loved it when it happened during COVID because I got some of the best deals I've seen. I'm seeing it right now again, but most of us recognize this is most likely going to be a very short-lived time. And so um, that's, that's what we're here to talk about today. So first, let me introduce Daniel Munoz. I actually met Daniel Munoz a long time ago. It's been approaching a decade. And Daniel and I connected when I really started to build my own personal portfolio. And he is actually the lender that did my first straight purchase conventional loans. And I found at that time, not only was he a great lender, of course, but he is an educational wheelhouse in terms of the fact that he understands the market, the products, how to manipulate them, of course, in the good ways to make things happen. And certainly he's been a big part of our clients' journeys. I, I haven't done conventional lending in a long time, obviously, you know, have more than 10 doors, but it's such an important tool in your toolbox. And when I deal with someone, whether it's a lender, whether it's a bank, whether it's an inspector, whoever it may be, I want them to be knowledgeable and I want them to be active in the market. And I'm proud to say that not only is Daniel someone that we work with on a professional level, Daniel's a client. And so I know he believes in our model. He believes in what we're doing. And he also, of course, I believe in what he's doing. And I've been real proud of his progress and his steps as a real estate investor following the journey. Daniel's been in the lending industry for 21 years. He's had positions ranging from loan officer to area manager. He's a co-owner of a Plano branch of American Financial Network. Um, they are one of the most knowledgeable teams I've ever experienced. They have an incredible name. They have fantastic reviews. He really has the ability to adapt their programs and their offerings to what the market is doing. And I've brought him clients and situations that I just didn't think he could work with on a conventional loan. And, you know, when we look at people like that, that maybe their file's not black and white, it's not crystal clear, that's typically something we have to take direct bank. And yet Daniel finds a way to get it done. And I love that they always have a great attitude about getting those things done and a hustle to make sure that the client and customer always comes first. He's extremely well-versed in mortgage investment strategies and everything to do with real estate and pretty much any type of lending that you could need. He's an investor himself, as I mentioned, and he has not only regular rental properties, but also short-term rentals. And that's been a really great journey to watch him follow. And it's it's just been great, Daniel, watching you build as a real estate investor and also you know building mutual clients with you. So I thank you for being here. I know you're busy, but I think that uh, our clients are gonna get a lot of great information from you today. So. Everybody meet Daniel Munoz. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. Nice to meet everybody <laughs> virtually. Okay, so we're just going to kind of dive right into this. <clears throat> and this this little this presentation is basically about where we are, where we've been over the last, I'd say, six, eight months, where we are right now, and where um, I think we're heading. And it is really where history tells us we're heading, right? So the cool thing about America is we do have a long history, and none of this stuff is new. So um, if you're just now getting into real estate, this may seem, you know, <clears throat> disheartening to you. It may seem shocking. But this is what happens. It's a very cyclical industry. Um, rates go up, inflation goes up, everything, uh, you know, housing prices come down and people make money. It's just the way it is. You know, this is one of those things I was watching a, an interview with a billionaire the other day, and he basically said, you know, now is the time where everybody's clutching their pearls and going, I'm not spending anything. Now's the time when people are going to make a mint. So it's one of those things where you kind of have to, you know, listen to people like Leah and myself and, and go out there and just kind of replicate what they're doing. And, and once I think once we show you some of this data, it'll make a little more sense to you while we're saying that. Um, let's see. Do I have? Okay, here you go. Um, so basically, I just want to start off looking at a history of inflation versus real, versus interest rates. And this goes all the way back to the 80s. Um, you're looking at, uh, and I had the names up here, but they're they're cut off now. But you're looking back in the early 80s, inflation was seven to 14 percent. Mortgage rates were 12 to 18 percent. And the Fed, the Fed fund rate went from 11 to 20 percent. So this is inflation jumped from 7 to 14. Rates jumped from 12 to 18. The Fed fund rate, they jumped at nine points. So basically 100 percent increase to 20 percent. And the inflation response dropped from 14 percent to 5 percent. In response to that, mortgage rates dropped from 18 to 12. And what was what happened in there? Recession. Same thing with Ben on the good old uh, Bernanke right there. Um, 1.75 inflation to three and a half. Rates jumped seven to eight. Uh, this is in the 90s, uh, late early 2000s. So uh, Fed fund rates 4.75 to six and a half. Uh, inflation response three and a half dropped to one, and then in turn rates again dropped from eight and a half to five. Then we've got the genius down here, Jerome Powell. Um, we, we took inflation from one and a half to eight and a half percent. Not sure what how that happened so fast, but it did. Uh, mortgage rates, this was a couple of months ago. So this slide is a few months old. We're well over 5% now. So mortgage rates went from 2.5%. Uh, we're, we're at about the 7% mark now. Uh, Fed fund rate, we know we're now at a 3 and a quarter, 3.5 range, somewhere in there. So you're talking about a 300% increase. What's going to be the response from inflation? Well, we're about to find out, right? So that they haven't given while they've been very aggressive on these Fed rate hikes, they haven't given us enough time to see if they're working. So this is the classic knee-jerk response that America does is we just go we go so far to the left, and then we're like, oh, went too far, all the way back to the right. Here we go. So what should happen? Inflation should drop. That's just what happens. And then uh, rates in response to that, they will drop. Rate Inflation is rate interest rate killer. Mortgage interest rate killer. As, as inflation go, interest rate goes as well. They... What's crazy also is they came out and said, well, we're not in a recession. Well, for the last 30 years, every gauge for a recession we've met, if, you, if we were going off the history of the USA. But the cool thing about this current uh, world we live in is they can just change the rules and they've changed what the definition of a recession is. So no, we're not in a recession, but I'm willing to bet after the midterms, they're gonna come out and they're gonna say, we're in a recession. Uh, here's where we are, and this is what needs to happen. Let's go to the next picture. 
Okay, so this is just a quick, just you can see what happens here. Usually when Fed when the Fed hikes the rate, you're looking at a an interest rate drop drop, right? So Fed hikes the rate, this is back in 2016, rates drop. Fed hikes rate, rates drop, Fed hikes rate, rates drop. In about October of 2018 here, or right before 2018, 2017. Well, the Fed came in and they said, we're gonna, we have what's called a balance sheet. And in that balance sheet, the Federal Reserve buys mortgage-backed securities. Well, they said, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna stop buying mortgage-backed securities. And not only are we gonna stop doing that, we're gonna do what's called, we're gonna let the balance sheet run off. So as we sell off these mortgage-backed securities, we're also not gonna reinvest them. Well, that's bad news for mortgage interest rates. So this has been a kind of a three-year hike. And in 2020, if, if COVID wouldn't have happened, rates would have been where they are now and we would be in the same position. We just delayed it with COVID and the fake stimulus and giving everybody money that has yet to run out, but it will. Um, so you see here, as they said, you know, we're gonna we're not gonna reinvest in mortgage-backed securities. You see what happens with rates. Well, then you see what happens over here. It got up so high, the rate hike, the rate hikes take hold and rates or the uh, yeah, the Fed rate takes hold, interest rate starts to drop again. Well, then they came back and said, okay, we're going to start reinvesting some because now we're now we're in 2020 and we have to do something to stimulate the economy because we're crushing it with everything else because of COVID. Um, they start reinvesting in mortgage-backed securities, and here we are. You drop drop the rates, you know, to all-time lows. People were we were locking people in the two and a half whatever range and insane interest rates. Well, we're back to the point where they said, okay, we're not buying mortgage-backed securities anymore. This is six, seven months ago. And also we're we're completely, we're gonna try to completely run off the balance sheet. Well, the, the balance sheet, the Fed balance sheet is $9 trillion. So to try to run that off and not put any money back in mortgage-backed securities, you're basically saying, we're turning it back over to private investors. And private investors, they like what's called yield spread premium. <laughs> they wanna get paid on their investment. So you're no longer artificially keeping the rates down. Okay, so that puts us. That takes us to the next one. Where, okay, so we're here. Moving on into today, kind of tells you where we are. And one of the biggest keys of a recession is where we called the uh, treasury, the ten-year and the two-year treasury, the ten-year bond and the two-year bond. The ten-year, a longer-term investment, typically pays more than a short-term investment pays. What happened in April of this year, and it's a lot worse now. What happened in April of this year? Those two, those two numbers inverted from each other. So, right now, the one-year and the two-year and the five and the seven are all paying more. Your short-term bonds are paying more than what the ten-year, the longer-term investment is, and that's completely opposite of the way it should work. Every time that that's happened in history, that is, you are 100% in a recession. So they can call it whatever they want. They can tell you, you know, they can say what they want. They can whatever, try to redefine it. The numbers don't lie. And here's where we are. Then go to the next. And this is just basically, this is gonna reiterate what I'm telling you. These light gray marks are the recession years, right? So you see same thing here. This is where the red, red is where the two year inverted with the 10 year, where it's paying more. So every time that happened, we followed that up with a recession. You can go all the way up 2000, 2000 2010. Go ahead. Um, same thing, unemployment rates. Uh, what happens 
during a recession, unemployment rates skyrocket. Well, what leads to a recession? So every time you have all-time high, um, un, or I'm sorry, all-time low unemployment, you always that always changes and it's followed up by recession. Well, we've had many years now of all-time low unemployment, um, which which is crazy because we need it to go up to come out of a recession. So. Um, which is happening. So you're, you're going to start seeing a lot of these places. You are seeing layoffs. In the mortgage industry, it's, it's massive, right? It's, it's happening left and right. Um, there's just, there's no business to keep half the, half of the employees that have been employed over the last few years, especially when they went on these massive hiring sprees uh, to cover all the, the uh, crazy business that went on in 2020 and 2021. Okay, go to the next. Okay. So here's what happens with mortgage rates during a recession, right? So the, the yellow lines are gonna show us when we're in a recession. Rates dropped in the 80s. They went from 16 to 11.75. So people think 7% is bad. Imagine, imagine paying 16% on a mortgage. <laughs> 18%. Next time we're talking about 82, you're talking 18 to 13. The 90s, 11 to 8.75. Early 2000, 7.375 to 6.75. Uh, 2008, 2009, 10, 11, 6 to 4.875, with a small little mini recession um, in 2020. That it's crazy that they classified that as a recession, but they won't classify this as a recession. Well, <laughs> it's all, all because of the politics of it. <laughs> all because of politics. That's all it is. We're, we are beholden to politicians at this point, and I think midterms are playing a huge role in that. Yeah, we see this every election cycle. You know, one side wants to say how bad things are, one side wants to say how good things are, and they're so polarized. And I think that's one of our problems is that we're constantly cycling now and the sides are so opposite every two years. And it makes it very difficult, I think, for the average layman or American citizen to really have an understanding of what's happening, not only in the nationwide market, but in their own local market as well. Yeah, it's the, the they make it to where nobody knows who to believe. You know, there's everybody thinks everybody has an agenda, which for the most part they do. And it's just tough to know what's truly going on. That's why I like data and charts, because regardless of what whoever you believe, whatever side you believe is telling the truth, the numbers don't lie. Right. So there's one thing that we know throughout the history of, you know, for the last 50 years is one thing stays strong through a recession. And that's housing. Um, you can see it right here. It's 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 always come out on the other side. The one the one anomaly is the 0607 range right there, right? The housing crash, the bubble. Well, that the reason that is the one anomaly is because you had zero percent down loans. Uh, you had stated income, like hey, write down on a piece of paper that you make ten grand a month making birdhouses outside of your aunt's house, and guess what? You're approved. Of course, that's going to, of course, the housing actually caused the recession back then, right? And that's because of the subprime and the crazy package deals that they sold to Wall Street and that everybody was getting paid until they weren't. <laughs> so that takes us to the next one. We're just going to, we'll just go into basically you're looking. So in, in 2007, we had a peak inventory of 3.7 million houses. Now, uh, that is insane when, when you think about it, but that's, there's just everybody losing houses back then, right? So you come all the way up to the 20, 2022 right now, I think we're at a total inventory of under a million houses right now. 
and yet our population's grown massively. Yeah, and our population has even increased, I think, by, I don't remember the exact number, I might have a slide on that, but the population has grown, and we've actually got less inventory, and then there's something that they tra that we actually tracked that I didn't put together a slide for, but it was something we tracked. We talked about new households forming. So the the crazy thing about new and when we talk about a new household forming, we're talking about like someone graduating college that has never owned a home before and they're going into the house now they're going to buy their first home, right? So when you talk about those new households forming and the and everything else that's amplified with our immigration and people coming over. We are in. We are still in a massive, massive, massive housing shortage. Now, why that? The reason that's relative to anybody on this call is you, this presents you with an opportunity because yes, times are scary right now. But people, these houses. Number one, what are these people going to do that want to be in a house that can't be right? It, you know, there's some people that flat out refuse to live in an apartment. Like I would, if I had to rent, it wouldn't be an apartment. I'd be renting a house. So the more ha houses you can get your hands on, and, and you know a lot of that, a lot of these renters come down to a lot of people renting while they're building things like that. So it's a the inventory issue is going to be exacerbated the minute we get any type of relief. And if you think 2021 was crazy, wait until wait until things level out and we get actually get a hold of this economy and rates. Even if they, I'm not saying drop to all time record lows. We don't need that. We don't. We don't need two and a half percent interest rates to make this thing skyrocket. We need like four and a half, even high fours, low fives. And we're gonna, you're gonna see a mad rush to do things all over. It's a double-edged sword because, and again, this goes back to hyper-local, right? Because there are markets that are gonna rebound differently. So let's yeah. talk about North Texas for a minute. So we had 155,000 people who moved here last year, right? And we already went into that with a record housing shortage. And then builders, right when they were finally starting to build, now they've all stopped. It's, it's an issue because A, they don't know that they can sell inventory, and B, the banks won't lend to them because they got into the spoiled habit of building and refusing to pre-sell because they were riding the market increases so yep. they could raise the price you know, on some of them 200,000 more when it was done than when they started. And so all these banks told the builders a few months ago, we're not going to let you do that anymore. We're cutting your trade lines. And, you know, when you're building, for example, you know, I was getting rates in the threes. And now as an investment, we're getting rates, most people in high fives, low sixes, if you have really good connections in cash or seven, if you're just a regular average real estate investor without contacts. And so it's really doubled the effective rate, but those higher risk things like build lines, like those types of financing deals that builders use, their rates are seven to nine plus percent because they're just riskier. There's no guaranteed income. And so the little traction that we started to make, I mean, we were in a 40,000 home shortage in 2020. We skyrocketed to close to 200,000 by this year. And our starts were down already by quarter one. By quarter two, they plummeted. And so that doesn't even take into consideration the average age of a home, right? So we haven't been building enough homes for 45, 50 years. This is not a new problem. The aggregate average age of homes in the United States is old. And the problem is that these homes are aging out of effective use and the vast majority of the older homes are smaller and don't work for a family of four or six or, you know, a, a typical 
size household that's going to be renting a single family home. And that's a very scary scenario because that's in a lot of ways what helps drive this hyperinflation of the housing market. So Daniel, you're right. We get any relief. We get back down to a number that people can afford right now. A mortgage payment's like double what it was. So we get down to a point because we have, especially in the generations that are turning into homeowners, they have the highest savings rates. They're the highest educated rate. I mean, these people are ready to buy and all they're doing is waiting because, right, there's two mentalities. You wait for rates to go down to buy, but all of us here in the market are saying you can shop the rate in six months when things calm down. You're not going to be able to manufacture a lower price again or a lack of competition again. And so, yeah, you know, four or five months ago, we might have been paying 50000 over list price, and now we can get a home at or below list price I'm going to take that all day long and deal with the rate in six months to a year versus chancing that knowing the housing shortage, and this is simple law of economics, supply and demand, what's going to happen on the flip side? We get relief. Everybody on the sidelines is going to come out of the woodwork, and it's going to be, in markets like North Texas, it's going to be insane. I don't think we're going to ever have seen anything like it, and it's just going to cause this issue all over again because we still have yet to actually find a solution to inflation. We, we have printed money over and over and over. We, you know, we went off the gold standard in the 70s, and so there's no longer anything tying the amount of cash, and we just keep fabricating money. We were talking yesterday, the, the federal government talking yesterday about more relief and more handouts, and it's just print, print, print. And at some point, all of that free circulating money is gonna continue to cause this compounding, and I think it's possible and Daniel, tell me what you think. But I think this cycle is probably going to be an every two to five year thing for the rest of our lives until something changes. It kind of looks like that. I wouldn't I wouldn't argue that point at all. I wouldn't I don't, I don't think I could find a reason to disagree with you. This is what I say. We are we are as much as I love America. We're dumb. We, we will straight up history will repeat itself with us. And, and we just don't learn from our mistakes or the, the people we put in charge, obviously, just don't learn from our mistakes. So. This is, goes back to this number of households right here. This goes back to what we were just talking about. Three million fewer homes are available from when, it, when in 2007 when at the peak, but there's 14 million more households. So, you know, a lot of people are sitting on the sideline right now. And this, and the only reason they are on the sideline is because of interest rates. There's no other, I mean, it, literally nothing else. Uh, I mean, it, there was a small affordability issue when it came to, can I compete with the over asking price and how do I make the numbers work and all that good stuff? But we're going to go right back to that. So, and this is, goes to your point a minute ago, it is much easier. This is what I tell every client. We are still, you asked me how business is going right now and it is slow. We're down massive, right? Because all the refines have dried up, but we are getting people done that had no shot 12 months ago, eight months ago. They had no shot because they didn't have 50 or a hundred thousand to pay over market. So now the people are coming in and they're like, hey, cool. So here's your asking price. Well, let me offer you this, uh, you know, 20,000 below what you're asking. And then, but also I need you to pay me. I, can you pay $10,000 towards my rate buy down? And, and sellers aren't saying no. No, so this, they're not because they don't care. 10,000 off the price or 10,000 to a rate buy down. It makes no difference to them. No, exactly. So there's ways to make these things work. And I, this is what I text Leah about a couple of days ago. I said, I think, at this point, you need to start because the rates are so out of, out of whack right now. We need to start structuring every offer where we're saying, hey, here's the offer, but we need 2% seller concessions for rate buy down. 
And, and that's just the way to tackle. We're doing it on all our primary offers right now. And sellers are, are motivated. There, there's nobody more fearful of someone that went in and bought a house right now because, you know, people do get in. They don't make some people don't make the best decisions, especially home builders, right? They they are they sat on that inventory because they wanted to try to capture that appreciation instead of pre-selling them. And now they've got all this stuff that are coming done, and they're like, not only are, there, are those houses available that they're willing to make good deals on, uh, but they're giving massive concessions. And then they're, but they also have people backing out left and right, not just because of it doesn't make sense for them, but a lot of those people just don't qualify. You know, when you go from a Hey, six months ago, I qualified you at a five and a quarter or a four and a half percent interest rate. Today, your rate's seven and a half. Like, oh, well, my payment just went up a thousand bucks. I can't do that, right? So it's one of those things that it, we're, you know, here we are and, and don't be afraid. I think one of my biggest things is what I tell everybody is don't be afraid to shoot your shot on making these offers on these houses. You don't know what you can get. Um, some of these people are, are, some people are willing to take losses at this point, but I don't think that's really not the position most people are in. They're just not going to realize that record gain that they were going to get. Like a year ago, if you told someone, hey, you can get this property and you'll sell it and you'll make 30 grand. Well, that 30 grand in, you know, at the, at the end of 2021, they're like, hey, if you get this property, that what it was a normally a $30,000 profit turned into, hey, you might make 90K on this deal. Well, just get back to reality. Those, they're not really losing anything. They're just not going to make a record profit like yeah. Um, so next and thing, I, the thing that I also I I would point out is it's about being in a strong market where you know the prices are going to be resilient because right now we're not seeing prices fall. We're just not seeing stuff selling egregiously over market. We're yeah. still up year over year. We're still seeing appreciation. It's I think what people don't understand is what we saw the last 16 months it's not sustainable. It's not possible. It was a record fluke that had to end or it would have crippled the entire country. It could not happen. And really what needs to happen is the fill of inventory, right? We just, we just don't have enough property. We don't have enough homes, but they can't yep. fix that. And so they really, they wanted to target housing this go around because they had to stop it. They, they can't have doubling in two years. They 100% had the slowest down. There's, there's no, there's no other way that you can ration this out and why that nobody, when you look at the government level, nobody's talking about this because you, if you do, you have to acknowledge that this is, this is very purposeful because you've, you've done several, it's, it's like three prongs. You've, you've locked up home equity, right? So there's, and we'll get into this here in just a second. People are sitting on massive amounts of home equity. Well, how do you stop them from tapping into that and, you know, triggering more inflation is you, you jump rates up. So you're like, hey, we can't give people access to this home equity right now. We got to make it to where it makes absolutely no sense for them to tap into their home equity. Well, and, um, and here's the thing. You've got what percentage, a massive percent of people locked in in the twos. They're not yep. going to sell. They're not going to refinance. And so an already compounded housing shortage is worse because they're not going to move. So nope. all of the people that typically would have listed in COVID didn't because of COVID. Then everybody refinanced on the ridiculously low rates or bought new homes at the ridiculously low rates. There was no inventory. If they didn't stop it, you would have created a massive impoverished part of the, the population because they simply couldn't afford to live. They simply couldn't afford a place to live. As yep. much as I think they're idiots and they have no clue what they're doing, they have no choice. 
you were going to hit home prices of 800, 900. And don't forget the builders were only building expensive homes. If you can sell expensive, why build cheap? Entry level homes for the average American disappeared overnight. And well, you saw, you saw, you saw that here in DFW, especially when you, when you look at, we were building these little McMansions everywhere, right? Six and five and 6,000 square foot houses. And, you know, and, but then it quickly, when the market turned, they said they started building 2,500 square foot um, and, but making them five bedroom houses and, and charging six and $700,000 for those things. So they, they shifted and they knew, and those houses aren't, a lot of those just aren't big enough to do what people need to do. It's, it's been very interesting. And, you know, the problem is, so you look at North Texas, for example, we're the fourth largest metro in the U.S. We're going to be number three pretty soon. And we had to go up. We were, we're undervalued. We still are undervalued. If you look at us compared to every other top market, we have more jobs and then lower unemployment rate. We have better politics in terms of business ownership and state income taxes and a whole lot of other things. So our prices are going to skyrocket. It's just, it, it's it's not a question of if, it's a question of when, because we have to get in line with the other large markets, but yeah. we are a completely different market. You look at Las Vegas, you look at Florida, you look at New York, you look at California and their markets, and it's very different. It's very, Washington. very different. Well, oh yeah. I mean, I've been telling, I had clients that were investing in Vegas and they were investing in Phoenix. And I'm like, look at what happened last time. They don't have the underlying infrastructure. Yeah. And, and this is the problem, right? We have more jobs than we have people to fill them. Our service industry is completely decimated, but we're right. still an affordable housing market. And I just, I, it, what scares me is what these other large markets are going to see. It scares me what Chicago and LA and New York and these other similar markets. I, I don't know how they come through this. I don't know what they look like on the backside because they're having that mass exodus. They don't have the job growth and everything that we're seeing here. You know, the yep. Bay Area is still doing okay from a job growth perspective, but the cost of living is in disparagement. You know, so our jobs coming here, for example, uh, less than 17% make less than 75,000 a year and over 49% make more than 150,000 a year. So our jobs are at the same pay rate as these very expensive metros. I don't know how you compete with that if you're these metros. You don't. <laughs> That's why you keep moving to Texas. That's <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Maybe if we could just slow that down a little bit. I mean, I kind of uh, mean that, but I kind of don't mean that. <laughs> well, I took my, I took my, I took my daughter out to. She wanted a little side job this last weekend, and and so she found one doing a, handing out flyers for a for a realtor in um for a like a meet your neighbor type thing. So we were walking around this neighborhood is in Addison, Texas, and man, the the about one out of every four homes had beta signs. So it's a pretty eye-opening on that level to see kind of what, what people are thinking. Collin County is definitely transitioning. And I think a lot of it is I, I got an ad today from Beto, and I'm, I'm not going to say what it says here, but if you're interested in hearing what politically is happening here in Texas, uh, go on my Facebook. I'll post a picture of the ad that came in the mail today. It's it's crazy. It's crazy. Now, all of that said, our, our conservative values from a business perspective, that's not going to change. Um, right. You know, the inner cities where you're seeing changes are Dallas and Houston, the inner areas where they're really struggling more with the poverty level. They're struggling more with the crime rates, not areas we invest in, not areas we sell in. But, um, you know, like any other big city, that's typically what happens. Those those inner cities, 
they have to have more programs and more things go into place just because of what happens within them, um, you know, macroeconomics of those areas. But it's it's interesting right now. It's very interesting because, like I said, both sides are so polarized and there's no right and there's no wrong. And I don't ever like to get political on these, so I won't. But it's from a sheer business perspective, it's very important that through times like what we're in right now, we remain fiscal conservative. That that I can say. And um, I am proud of our state legislature that that they're doing that. They're they're doing that. So um, let's let's talk about kind of what we what we think is going to happen with inflation and what we're going to see with interest rates over the next let's say year. So walk so me. Is, I know these next few slides kind of cover some of this. Yeah. So this is really I think the main where you're going to get the most out of this because everybody kind of knows where we are. They know where we've been. I know that it's tough right now, but I do not have a negative outlook. Um, and I've had this conversation. I've got, you know, I've got employee, I've got 20 employees looking at me going, dude, where are we going? <laughs> I'm like, well, we're going to, we're going to hold on for right now. We're going to, you know, tighten up a few things and, and it's going to get better. So like the previous slides we showed you, inflation drives interest rates. And there is just no, I mean, look at, you can just look at the chart here. As inflation goes, so do interest rates. Interest rates are up there because inflation is way up there. And we just haven't had the time for the Fed fund rate to take effect and get a hold of, um, of the market and show what's really happening. So just in the last 10 days, you had Gap, you had Nike, and uh, I always forget the third one. There was another big company came out and they said, hey, we have massive amounts of inventory right now, massive. Like we're about to slash prices by 50, 60% to get some of this stuff out of our warehouses and into people's hands. People aren't buying stuff. Um, so they, what, you know, the, the whole, the whole uh, point of raising the Fed fund rate is to squash demand. The only way you kill inflation is to kill demand and to basically crush the economy. Weird how we have to do that to ourselves to get a hold of the world and make sure we don't go into a depression instead of a recession. But this is this is where we are. So the crazy thing is, is um, I think so. We've gone and um, and then this next slide. Well, yeah, this next slide will kind of show us where we are with interest rates right now. So you're talking about when when will inflation peak, right? So. They came out and things got really bad in September and people it was people were shocked for some reason because they don't understand. I guess I don't know how you don't understand this, but when you're looking at this CPI consumer price index and they say, <laughs> um, well, we look at it year over year. So in September, we looked at it for um, August of this year, 2022 versus August of uh, 2021. Right. And so we're like, oh, it's it's way, way up. It's way up. So you're like, well, not really. So August and September. Right. So August and September, you're at 0.2 and 0.3 percent. So you're comparing 2022 to 2021, where we're at some of the lowest CPI out there. So what's going to happen is when October, when in November 2nd, when we start looking at the October numbers. Look at October for 2021 versus where we are in 2022. This is when you're finally going to say, oh, we've, we've got it under control. Like you could do that right now, but they just, the numbers aren't out there and they're not releasing the data. So this is truly going to show, this is truly going to tell you. So when you look at 
August and September of 2021. And then you say, okay, well, we showed a massive increase from August of this year versus August of last year. And same with September, September's up above here, right? So it, it, you're talking we're at six and a half or whatever right here. Uh, well, you probably don't see my arrow, but I'm pointing over here to August of 2022. But um, you're comparing apples to oranges, in my opinion. And when they start comparing October to October, you're going to get a more realistic idea of what's happening and have we even begun to get a foothold on inflation. And I think the answer, the short answer is there is yes. So what, what I see happening right here is you're going to see, you're not, I don't think we're going to see a massive rate drop in November. I think we're going to see a, a stabilization because what's happening right now, like if you look today, so Monday and Tuesday, in mortgage-backed securities were up, we gained about 60 basis points. Well, then we came in this morning and we lost 66 basis points. So we're on a, just a straight up roller coaster ride. It is nothing, there's no way to gauge from one way to the next. Are we going to get better pricing today or are we going to get worse pricing? Now, I would tend to bet on worse because it's two steps forward and one step back always. Um, so I think we're going to see in November, you're going to see a, a slight dip and, and then a definite level out where we'll, we'll say, okay, I think, I think inflation has peaked and we've actually got a hold of it because you truly need two quarters of data before you see what your Fed rate did to the economy. And it's just, it, it goes back to my original statement is we always overreact. We swing the pendulum way too far one way. And then we, you know, we need jerk and we come back like, oh, too far, too much. Got to come back this way. Um, so November is a big, big, big month for us. And I, th and I think it's going to work out to our favor. Um, and this, this next slide is basically just talks about uh, kind of where we are, just is a history of interest rates. So if you see what's happened from 2021, you're down low below three. And then we've peaked all the way up here to six, eight, seven, five, seven ish. We're, we're truly up above the seven mark. My chart didn't go up that, didn't update to that point yet. So we're up there. And then if you just keep keep moving on there, you're there's not one data person or one one entity out there that is that is projecting rates anywhere over five and a half percent for at, at for the for final quarter of 2022 and then for basically all of 2023 so the people that matter uh freddie mac fannie mae mba uh, there's also a couple other ones i couldn't fit on here but you're looking at you know freddie saying look we're gonna we're gonna settle in the low fives Fannie's a lot more optimistic than that. They're saying we, we're probably going to settle in the mid mid to high fours. Uh, MBA, low fives, and NAR is, not, is kind of pessimistic. Like we're, we're at six. <laughs> so, well, here's the thing. Any of these restarts the housing market. 100%. So everyone is looking like we're in a multi-year issue here. And and don't get me wrong, guys. You know, the, the inflation and what's happening and, and the fact that people don't want to go back to jobs and, and all the other nuances that are going on, they're not going anywhere. What we're looking at here is what is happening to the housing market. And I think what I think, I think the Fed's going to raise again in November. And I think what we're going to see on the actual interest rate side of investment lending and lending is that it's going to stable off and start dropping. And so I think by the next time we're talking about this early next year after the election, I think rates are going to start going down very quickly. So if I were a betting woman and I had my, my 
fake crystal ball out, I would say right in time for next prime season, things are going to go more back to where normal should be. You know, rates shouldn't be at two or three percent. That's that's ridiculous. It never should have been there. Um, no, it wouldn't but, have been COVID, wouldn't it? No, I mean, in, in the last in the last housing market that was going so crazy, uh, prime rates for investment loans and regular loans were in the sixes. I mean, that was in the best market until what we just came out of. And, and it, we're still better now than way better than what we were then. So the bottom line is that we need to be in the fives, the fours. That's where we need to be for starting mortgages for conventional loans and then, you know, up from there. So the bottom line is, I believe by the time we get to March, I think we're going to be on the trajectory back to normal. And I think that we're going to be settled out normal by the end of next year. So for for me, sitting on the sidelines isn't an option because I know when that happens, simple supply and demand, the, the metrics of our market, all the other factors that we've talked about, it's going to go crazy. I think we're going to be right back where we were. People paying way over asking. I mean, even right now, I'm buying like crazy. I'm actually about to close a, a two million, two and a half million dollar, 1031, and I've, I've got to go identify over 50 houses. Crazy. Yep. Don't even ask me how I'm going to do that. But I am seeing appraisals right now as good, if not better than what I was seeing four months ago. But I'm able to pay a little bit less on these properties because there's just not as much competition. Investors are still out there. It's the ones that are very qualified or the people that have contacts like we do that still have good lending terms. And so it's I can't wait. I won't wait because I know what's coming. I know that I'm going to make a lot of money on what I'm doing right now by next year or the year after. Um, so I think that's it goes back to we all have to decide what investment strategy makes sense for us and would i be doing my strategy in new york absolutely not but here absolutely um and you know most of our investors are buying like crazy right now because they understand that and and their jobs are stable and you know it it's all about what do we think is going to happen but i think what everyone agrees on is we've about hit the top of where we're going to go yep 100 percent. i think i think that is the key there is it's just a matter of time and I know it. I know it's tough. It's like I, I, all my employees and then you know our operational staff. It's like, I know it's tough, but there is light at the end of the tunnel, and history tells you that. And because it always has. And if you if you follow housing, you know that housing does. You know, I'm not saying that 2023 is not going to be that we're it's not going to be a recession year and that things are going to be tough. But housing is going to perform, and it's going to perform really well. Yep, that's absolutely true. I mean, Daniel, um, you and I on our rentals, we're making more money than ever. Yeah. So with this next slide here, this is just a couple of things I wanted to share with people, just so you kind of know. You know, we, me and Leah, we're part of a lot of the same groups where you just see people really uneducated um, make comments about, oh, they're rubbing their hands together. Oh, here comes a wave of foreclosures. No, it's not. There's, it's, it's not happening. Number one, people put so much money down going into the last couple of years um, that, it, that it's just crazy. And you talk, just look at the, the chart here. People will put more money down ever on this last cycle than they ever have in the history of housing. So you're going to see, you're going to see massive equity positions. And this is, if you, when you go to the next slide here, you're going to see, let's see, where's it at? Well, this is, we'll come back to this one. Let's go to the, Well, I, I put these all out of order, didn't I? Let's go to the very last one, Leah, and then we'll come back to these two. Okay, so 
over the last, um, from Q2 2021 to Q2 2022, the average home equity gain was between, was, was about $60,000. That's, that's just average all across the board. And it's, you know, a lot of places are going to be some way higher, some are a, little, a lot less. It takes, it just kind of takes into everything, right? And in, into account every little area. One thing I wanted to point out, and I highlighted it here, and this is, the national average loan to value is 42%. That means people are sitting on 58% equity in their properties right now. It's incredible, not, isn't it? There is not a massive wave of foreclosures coming. You will never, you know, I lived through, you you and I, but we, we lived through 2009, 10, 11, that, that crash, and that was painful. You will never see that again. There's never because because you will never see those loans again. You will never see a fog and mirror loan. You'll never see a zero down investment property. You saw people are doing zero down investment properties back where you literally didn't have to prove your income. That's insane, right? So you'll never see that again. And these people that are sitting on these houses now, especially on the investor side, I don't. Leah, you know, Leah was always asking, you know, can you do twenty percent down investment properties? Yeah, we can. But you know, this was back during the, the good, the good the low, low rates. But 25% down really gets you, puts you in the best financial position. Um, it does take away a little of your purchasing power if you're trying to bundle up some of them. But if you're only getting one or two, the 25% was the way to go. So you're you're looking at people that put down a massive amount of money, first of all, and then they got the benefit of the most insane real, real estate market over the last few years, and their equity positions are insane. So you're not, there's no, there, there will be no housing crash. There will be, the only problem housing is going to have, and this is guaranteed, is a housing shortage. We have, we've talked, I mean, you're going to keep hearing this because it's the problem and we're not doing anything about it. So um, let's go back up to, let's see, overall, yeah, overall delinquency by state. So you're looking at, um, you're looking at when they so when everybody went into the COVID forbearance agreements and all that stuff, like, oh, that's gonna be it. There's your here's gonna there people aren't gonna be able to get out of that. They're gonna, they're gonna, those are gonna be your next wave of foreclosures. Well, guess what? No, it's not. Those people came out of it and their delinquent our delinquency rates are low down lower than they were at the same time last year by one or by like one and a half percentage points. So People are doing well. Um, they're they're treating their properties as if they have massive equity positions. So, when people have something massive to lose, they're not going to just give that up. Okay. So people, you will see people start to say, okay, we're going to, and this is what's going to you know stop inflation. So we're going to stop spending money here so we can pay our mortgage. We can't lose this equity position, right? So back in 2010, 20, 2009, 87, people are zero down. They have nothing to lose. I'll walk away. Who cares? I'm done. I'm losing nothing. I put nothing into it. I capitalized for the last couple of years. Um, take it back. Good luck. Whatever. So we're just that's just not the not what's gonna happen. Um well and the other piece is these people are locked into the lowest rates of their lifetime. They can't go anywhere and spend what they're spending. If they move, it's gonna cost them more. Yeah. So you that's one thing I was gonna say earlier is it's hard when you when you look at the rate projections from for the next year you're not going to talk anybody in that's locked into three percent to looking at anything at a seven percent rate right now you're just not I, they're, they're not going to do it 
they'll look at a four and a quarter all day long. I get, you know, what's crazy is we, I've got people calling me going, man, if we can get down into the high fours or, or low fives, I'm, I'm willing to do something. And to hear that when I was literally a year ago telling people, hey, you're raised three and a quarter. Uh, I, I think we're going to go into the two. I'm going to wait. And I'm like, really? You're, really? I'm pretty sure you got me a jumbo at 275. Yeah. Yeah. That was, those were good days. Yeah. Yeah. That was the good old days. <laughs> I yeah. don't think we're ever going to see that again. <laughs> So this chart right here, basically 30 days or more delinquent, um, this is, just shows you uh, where we are right now. So you, this is the big one here is the 120 plus days past due. So in June of 2021, what that represented is um, people doing, doing, cause they still reported those loans as, as late, even though they were in whatever type of forbearance they were in. So, and people took advantage of that. You know how many people called me that did not need to put their mortgage into forbearance and did not understand how bad of an idea that was. We did a webinar about it. Remember to try to yeah. stop people because they were saying, oh, it won't affect your credit. It won't affect your credit. Yeah. So that, yeah, we did. You're right. I forgot about that. We did. We tried to, because I was getting, I was filling phone calls every 10 minutes. I like, got, oh, I'm going to, man, why wouldn't I just skip three payments? Well, because you're going to never be able to do anything again for the next two years. Don't do that. Um, but if you look at it now, so this is more realistic. Just look at the data, right? So you're right now you're at 1.1% of 120 days past due, and the amount of mortgages out there that's insanely low. So this is just more of um, just more data to show you that the housing there is no there is no housing crash. Um, this is just another chart right here. It basically shows you what your average equity gain is by state. Um, obviously, a couple of a couple of the, the alarm states that Leah talks about is your California, your Florida, massive, massive equity gains. But those are also the ones that tank the biggest, even even Nevada, you know, especially Nevada over there too. I think being in Texas, you have one of the most unique shielded opportunities out there, and it's there's several reasons for that. And I think one one of the most overlooked reasons for Texas being in its own little bubble is we we have this thing called the Texas Constitution. The Texas Constitution has what's called an A6 law. That A6 law says that you cannot take out more than 80% of the equity in your house. So we cap people. Like in, in California, you could go up to 85, 90%. Um, I don't know if that's changed lately, but back in the day, we would cash people out to 90%, and people were refinancing every six months and cashing out because their values were going up so fast and so much. Um, in Texas, you can only do those type of loans one time a year. And you're capped at 80% loan to value. So that that is also another thing that shields us from having these kind of market crashes that other states will see because they don't protect their citizens like that. Now, while while I'm also I don't really like that rule, um, but I have been very appreciative of it because it maintains people's home equity position and doesn't let them get back. If you refinance someone, cash them out at 90%. And there's a 10% drop in their little area or whatever. Well, now they're upside down or close to upside down, right? So in Texas, um, that's obviously why we do it with investment properties. With 25% down in investment properties, even if there is any kind of little rocky road where you dip a little bit in value, your equity position is still really good, which is not going to happen. Yep. So this just basically shows you uh, the average equity gain looking at it a little bit differently. So this is on a nationwide basis. Mm -hmm. And 
you can see that all of these states saw massive gains. Of course, the ones that were the most volatile that I mentioned are states like California, states like Florida, and it's because it, it just went up at such an unreasonable pace. It's just not sustainable. And uh, of course, you know, Texas, an average of 54,000 year over year, 54,000 is more than 10% in a year. Most of our areas, especially where we operate, saw close to 30%. It's not sustainable. It's just not sustainable, but it does, it, it shows you not only were people paying and putting full money down on these properties, full typically 20%, if not paying cash for a lot of these people relocating, um, but if they were putting, you know, 10, 20% down, they were putting an extra 50 or 100 grand on top of it. I, I had people bidding 200,000, 250,000 over asking in some price points in areas, especially Collin County. So it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. We have people bidding 200 over and not winning. <laughs> Yeah, no, 100 percent. It's it was insane. It was insane. But we're I, I think we're going to get there again. I think that as soon as rates come down. So we have this backlog of people on the sidelines now. And the minute rates drop, people are going to think it might be the last time. And uh, anyone and everyone who wants a house is going to run. I think you're, you you hit a very important factor or point right there. People people do feel like they messed up big time. And the next time this opportunity rolls around, even if it's not the, the two, eight, seven, five, and the three, three and a quarter, they're not going to let these opportunities pass them by again. And that goes for investors and primary home residence buyers alike. Well, and rents have gone up so much. I mean, rents have skyrocketed 18 to 25% year over year. So people that were saving money by renting, um, you know, it's, I think a lot of people are afraid to stay in rentals where the prices just keep going up. I had some of my cheap two bedrooms. I raised two, $300 a month. It's just, it's a very, very different world. And again, the housing shortage is really at the root of all of it. Of course, our, our strong market, the number of people moving here, the jobs, all those things, they're all important. But at the end of the day, if there's not enough places for people to live, people are going to pay what they have to pay to have a home. Agreed. 100%. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. As always, you've been a wealth of knowledge. Daniel's information here is uh, in dmunoz at afncorp.com. That's his phone number. And of course, y'all know how to reach us. But thank you so much for attending today. And uh, hopefully, I will see you at our next class in a couple of weeks. Thanks again, Daniel. You're welcome. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye.